We're uh, starting a new series today. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what's your story. And we're going to hear some biblical stories from profoundly interesting biblical characters. And we're going to find that the way they navigated their stories, even the way they used their stories, have significant implications for us and, and for our stories. We're going to start this morning because we spent the summer, those of you who are here, you'll remember we spent the summer working our way through the book of Acts, and we talked a lot about the Apostle Paul. So we're going to start this morning with Paul's story, and he kind of gives us a synopsis of his story in the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Galatians? It's one of those little books toward the back of the New Testament. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, dial into Galatians. And we're going to look at a part of chapter 1. And part of chapter 2 of Galatians this morning where Paul actually gives his story. So I'm going to start reading in Galatians chapter 1 and I'll read verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Stay with me if you can, Galatians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. And when he uses that word gospel, of course, Paul means the good news message. The great story about God showing up in the form of Jesus Christ and saving us. The gospel I preach is not something man made up. I didn't receive it from any person, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. Look, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I, I went immediately into Arabia and I later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So he's spent three years in Arabia and in Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. I stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. And it must be the case that the Galatians have heard, you know, Paul was uh, heavily influenced by first some of the leaders in Jerusalem and then by some other people. And what he's told you is not really exactly the giddy-up. There are evidently some teachers that have come through Galatians that have been explaining it to these Galatian Christians like this. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia, and we talked about that on his missionary journeys. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, hey, The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And and they praised God because of me. Okay, we're going to hear some things over the next several weeks that I believe carry profoundly important implications for how we relate to others, how we live, really. We're beginning a new series called What's Your Story? And we're going to unpack our stories as well as some of these stories. So how would you describe Paul's language in this passage. How would you describe Paul in this passage? Intense? Direct? A little defensive? Maybe even a little offensive? He's clearly contending for something. So the setting here is there is a teaching that suggests that really this new Christian movement, the movement of following Jesus, was a sect of Judaism. And what needed to happen for any folks that became Christ followers is they needed to become thoroughgoing Jews. So if they had not been circumcised, they needed to be circumcised, and they needed to do temple sacrifices, and they needed to obey all of the rituals and follow the laws and the practices. Paul's point is, of course, that's not the case, and he opens this passage by making this point. The good news message I conveyed to you came from God came directly from God. This is Paul's main point in this opening chapter. Don't reject it. In fact, if you reject it, you do so at your own peril. The message is true and real. It came from God, and I fought hard for it on your behalf. Please listen. Please remember. Please hold on. Don't let anyone add anything to it. Now, this is a 
critical point for those of you who are pretty new to the business of trying to follow Christ. I, I should let you know that practically, in terms of how we live our lives today, this is a critical point in church history. Theologically, this is a critical point in church history. This is why you and I don't observe Passover, for example. This is why there are many Christians around the world that don't practice circumcision on their young boys because of this. This is also how we began to see the the worship of Jesus emerge. Already at this point, they're struggling with what do we do with Jesus? These folks were solidly one God kind of people. And if you worship Jesus, what does that say about Jesus? We'll talk a little bit about that in the coming weeks as well. But know that this is probably the most significant argument, the most significant theological battle in all of church history. So in this critically important battle, what ammunition does Paul marshal to advance his argument? He doesn't quote from the Torah, the Old Testament law. He doesn't advance some simple or some complicated philosophical argument. He doesn't name call. Interestingly, Paul's primary evidence is his own story. First of all, that tells us a great deal about the power of our story, mine and yours. Also, the fact that he uses his story in this way, of course, gives us an opportunity to learn much about Paul and about Paul's Christian experience and therefore about our own. So I'm going to read the back half of this section. I'm going to read the first part of chapter 2. And then I want to talk about two critically important features of Paul's story. This morning, this is going to be very foundational. This is like home base. This is the place that those of us who are trying to walk out a spiritual life in connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. This morning, we're talking about what we have to constantly return to and touch. So we'll talk about two critically important features that will be, of course, a window into our own story. But first, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And now I'm just going to continue with Paul's narrative here. And let's make sure we're awake. Go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Fourteen years later, so Paul has been traveling some. He's started a number of churches at this point. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, his buddy who traveled with him on his first missionary trip. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the good news message, the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be the leaders for fear that I was running or or had run my race in vain. I wanted to submit and check out the message. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. They wanted to add the matrix of Judaism on on top of our worship of Jesus and our our connection with God. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't judge by external appearance. These men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be the pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. And all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You can be seated. All right, two critical features, and let's don't forget these this week. Number one, God was the driving force in Paul's story. God was the driving force in Paul's story. All right, don't go to sleep on that. If you're half awake, you may be thinking, oh, of course we're going to say that. We're in church. Or, you know, uh, of course. That, 
this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about, but don't, but don't sleep on how thoroughly and completely this is true for Paul's story and how applicable this is to our story, how this is for you and I, home base. Notice in chapter 1, verse 12, the first section we read, everything I taught you, Paul says in essence, everything I believe came, did you catch that phrase? By revelation from God. In other words, God is the author of my thinking. God is the author of my worldview. What I'm doing up here is a reflection of what God is doing in me and how he's moving in my story. God is the driving force in Paul's story. Chapter 2, verse 2, did you catch that language? At a certain point, Paul says he decided to go back to Jerusalem. After a number of years, he's been on his missionary journeys. And this too, this decision came because of a revelation from God. God is the impulse behind Paul's significant decisions. So when Paul has a significant life decision to make, what do I do? You know, what about career? How do we invest this money? What do we do? Paul makes reference to God. God is the driving influence in his significant decisions. Chapter 2, verse 7. In effect, the Apostle Paul says, My life's work and teaching, I was entrusted with it. It didn't come to me because I'm a really clever guy. It was given to me by God. God is the driving influence in in my life's work and in my teaching. In fact, later in chapter 2, according to chapter 2, verse 20, The Apostle Paul says, in effect, God has fully and completely revealed himself in Christ. God has revealed himself in Christ. So for me, to live is Christ. My life is really Christ living through me, Paul says, because God was a driving influence in Paul's story. In his whole story, his decisions, his mindset, his understanding, his worldview, his beliefs, all driven by his connection to God. So for you and I, we're at the beginning of a season in which we as Americans are going to make political decisions. For those of us who follow Christ, our political decisions are are not driven by the light post of tolerance on the one hand, or let's make America great on the other hand. Both of those are really good impulses. But our political decisions are driven, the driving force behind our political decisions is our connection to God and what he's doing in our story. Our finances, the financial decisions that you and I make are not driven primarily by how do I secure my retirement or how do I pay for my kids' college or how do I make our lives more comfortable? How do I make as much money as I can? Honestly, those are all laudable goals, but that's not the driving force in our financial decisions. In our financial decisions, the driving force is our connection with God from the very beginning of our lives and all throughout. And every time we venture away from that, we get ourselves into trouble. How about relationships? The primary driving force in relationship for you and I is not how do I feel or how does this person make me feel. The driving force in our relationships is what does this relationship do to my connection to God? And what is God saying in my story right now to, for, against, with this relationship? Every decision, every mindset, our worldview is driven by the driving force is our connection to God. And as we look carefully at the lives of the other apostles, we recognize that you know, Paul's not unique in this. It's, it's easy to see that this was true for all of them. We won't go through all of that, but I think it's fascinating. I thought about this this week, and you realize we kind of get a glimpse, I think, of the first time this begins to be true in Peter's case. We get a glimpse at the beginnings of Peter recognizing that God would be the driving force in his story. There's an incident recorded for us in John chapter 6 where Jesus gives this really unusual, somewhat bizarre teaching And crowds of people begin to leave him. And Jesus looks at his few intense followers, and he says to them, you know, are you also going to leave me? And Peter says, where else would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Peter's beginning to recognize, if I want to be connected to God, then it's going to happen through this, and this is everything. 
I know what you just said is completely bizarre, and I don't get it, and we've just lost our entire financial base. The movement has evaporated. And yet, this is where I have to be because this is the driving force in my decisions and in my mindset and in my worldview. This is also true of all of the first followers of Jesus. That passage that we, if you were here last week, the passage we tipped our hat at last week was, you know, that snapshot picture of the early church. It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were, their lives were soaked in this business of connecting to God and finding out more about what God had shown himself through his son, Jesus Christ. By this point in his ministry, this reality that God's the driving force behind everything, that reality is so profoundly true for Paul. Please don't miss this, that he sees his entire life in this context. I want to read verses 15 through 17 of chapter 1. We read it just a second ago. He says, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any person, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. In other words, Paul's entire life from before he was born he sees in the context of God as the driving force, the driving influence. You know what I thought about this week? For those of you who have children, you will remember well the period when your kids first started to walk. I can remember when our kids first began to pull up on things. You remember that stage? They'd pull up on a coffee table or on a chair or maybe even your pant leg, and they'd stand like that as they were trying to get their balance and figure out what this new world looked like on two legs. And then they would begin to take tentative steps. Now imagine, you know, the brain's not really fully formed yet. They're just kind of figuring all this out. But imagine if they had the capacity to, you know, complete self-awareness at that point. They had adult minds. They begin to stumble across the room like this and they make some steps and then they start to fall. And then Something grabs them and they look and, oh, wow, they're thinking, that was really fortuitous. There you are, right when I was about to fall to grab me. And then you set them down again and they start in the other direction and they begin to lean and they start to fall. And then again, you pick them up, turn them around, and they look at you and they hold their arms out and they're thinking, every time I start to fall, that's incredible. You're right there because you were there all along. You were following every single step right behind them, making sure. But when God, who set me apart from birth, and called me by his grace, when he was pleased to say, okay, now, Paul, wow, okay, I recognize you. How fortunate that you just happened to be here then. I think it was probably years. It was for me. To realize, you know, I can remember early in my own Christian walk, I would tell my own journey in a certain way. You know, I, there was this time and I just, I really realized and I, I got connected to God. And as I got further along in my connection with God, I began to realize, no, wait, there was stuff happening before that. No, wait, there was stuff happening before that. No, wait. I mean, I could have died at that point and I didn't. Wait, I could have made a catastrophic decision. Wait. Back there, I didn't. Our entire lives, our entire story is in the context of God as the driving force. This means that Paul has come to realize that his story is really a significant but very small part of God's story. I'm going to say that again. Paul had come to realize that his story was really a significant but very small part of God's story. Paul's story was a part of God's story. The same is true for us. You know, if you're a fan of basketball, basketball players talk about being in the zone. And it just means that the basket looks like it's 10 feet wide. You feel like you're just 
in the flow of the game. You're lost in the game. Everything's working. Your mind and your body are in touch with what's happening on the court and with everybody else. And every pass, every shot seems effortless and perfect. We are operating in the zone. We're operating at our best. Our lives are being lived in concert with reality when we recognize, acknowledge, and accept that God is the driving force in our story. We've said this before, but remember, we don't relate to God like someone who lives upstairs. When Diane and I were first married, we lived in an apartment. There were people who lived above us. We don't relate to God the way Diane and I related to our upstairs neighbor. You and I relate to God the way Harry Potter relates to J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling wrote the story, Harry Potter, all of the books. Now, the analogy is not perfect because you and I can exercise will. We make decisions. And yet, God is writing the story all around us. And we operate in the zone when we connect with that reality, the reality that's much bigger and broader than we are. Here's the fascinating thing about that analogy. You know, the Harry Potter can know, I, never, I didn't read Harry Potter, I'm sorry, I know that's un-American, but Harry Potter, give me some characters. Harry Potter can know Dumbledore, for Harry Potter can know other characters in Harry Potter, but Harry Potter can never know J.K. Rowling unless she writes herself into the story. This is what God did in Christ. He wrote himself into our story. The recognition that God is the driving force in our story is not only critical, it produces some incredibly effective and important principles for living. And I'm going to give you just two. When we recognize that God is the driving force in our story, all kind of principles for living and vistas open up to us that are critical and incredibly important. I'm just going to mention two characteristics. First, humility. When we really get that God is the driving force in our story, then it's not primarily about me. And by it, I mean everything. My own story is not about me. My story is about what God is doing through me, in me, and around me. That means I can really live for others. I'm not just able to live for what Diane can give me. So I do for Diane to maximize the effect of what Diane can do for me, but it means I can really live for Diane if I know that God is the driving force behind my story. This is what I was designed for, but I can never get there, not fully, I can never get there without recognizing that God is the driving force in my story. Chapter 2, verse 5, Paul makes it clear in this passage that he's doing, he's contending, he's doing all of this for them, for the Galatians, I did this for you. We wanted to hang on to this message for you. This good news message that God revealed to me, I've contended for it for you. And when you hear me say humility, don't allow yourselves to kind of shrug and say, oh, that, you know, that's good. That's a good, nice religious value, humility. I want to remind you, Jim Collins is a, a business author who's written a series of wildly best-selling books about business most well-known of which is called Good to Great. And Collins has spent his entire career, he's in fact built a research industry. He hires a small army of researchers to help him research the best business practices, leadership practices, management practices around the world. So he has interviewed and done extensive research with tens of thousands of managers in the largest and best run and largest and most poorly run companies in the world. And out of that, Collins has identified key features of extremely effective leadership. Collins has identified this scale that he calls level one leaders, level two leaders, level three leaders, level four leaders. In each level, he describes in detail both the outworking of that leadership, what that leadership looks like on the ground in the companies where these leaders are represented, but also the characteristics that produce that outworking. 
And his top level of leadership is level five leadership. And he's identified a few leaders because of the effectiveness of their company and because of surveys of their employees and because of the the kind of support that their employees feel and the productivity of their companies. He's identified level five leadership. And Jim Collins, he's not a Christian. Well, I don't know. He may be a Christian, but he doesn't write Christian books. Jim Collins identifies the key feature, the key attribute, the key characteristic for a level five leader. Humility. Because hubris, hubris attracts a lot of attention. It draws people to you. It's very good for an organization in the very early stages, and people are on board, but over time, it's not sustainable. Level five leaders are humble leaders. And you and I don't get real humility. We don't get sustainable humility. We don't get the kind of humility that carries us in our relationships, in our work relationships, in our home relationships. We don't get the kind of humility that really allows us to be for others without recognizing that God is the driving force in our story. We're not, our cleverness is not, it's not happenstance, it's not our good breaks, it's not our good breeding. God is the driving force in our story. Again, this is the touchstone for us. This is home base. I want to give you a a second characteristic that I think is produced. It's the outgrowth. It's the outcrop of recognizing that God is the driving force in our story. A, A second outcrop would be a word Paul mentions here, freedom. It doesn't all depend on me. It depends on God if God is the driving force in our story. I can let go. I don't have to worry. Health problems occur, but I know God is the driving force. God is behind this. So I can let go. Some terrible crisis happens in relationship. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying what you and I do is we do the work of letting go. Because God is the driving force behind this. He's protecting. He's nurturing. He's guiding. God is the driving force in our story. Financial difficulty happens. God is the driving force in our story. God is moving in and around and underneath, above and below. You know, have you seen these mice studies that they've done, extensively done over the years? They've repeated this study many times. They wire a mice cage so that it can send an electric shock. And they'll put a solitary mice in the cage that's, that's wired to shock the mice. And so at certain intervals, they'll press a button, and the cage begins to shock the mouse, and you know the mouse is running around crazy, trying to make sure his feet aren't touching, and he's not getting shocked. Then they provide at one somewhere in a corner or in the middle of the cage somewhere, they'll provide a button. And if the mouse goes over and somehow hits the button, the shock stops. So they train the mouse to, as soon as they put current into the cage, the mouse will run over, stop it. Here's what they found. When they tied the button push to the current directly, so in other words, current is turned on, mouse runs over, hits the button, current stops, Mice begin to show dramatic signs of anxiety. (laughs) And the more often they shock the mouse, the more often the mouse has to make the decision to go over and press the button, the more anxious they become. They begin to lose their hair after a while. They have dramatic stomach problems. You know what else exacerbates it? If they put other mice into the cage with the mouse and then do the shocking exercise... Again, the anxiety is exacerbated. When they remove the button from the shock, in other words, now the button doesn't mean anything. The mouse goes over, hits the button, nothing happens. Cage shocks the mouse for a while, then it goes away. All of the anxiety goes away. (laughs) All the signs of worry go away. When the mouse is not feeling whatever this feels like for a mouse, when the mouse is not feeling control over the decision to stop the shocking or not stop the shocking, when it really doesn't matter, the mouse has no anxiety. Bear with me. We're, I believe, a little more sophisticated than mice, but when you and I try to carry too much control over our lives, 
we're fooling ourselves and we're wiring ourselves for anxiety issues. We're wiring ourselves to display, experience, show the effects of worry in our lives. Freedom is one of the characteristics that's produced by you and I constantly and consistently recognizing that God is the driving force in our story. God is the driving force in my story. As I realize this more and more fully, I'm made more and more humble, and I'm made more and more free. Okay, a second feature of Paul's story, and we'll do this one quickly. At a certain point in time, Paul made a decision to turn, which affected everything. At a certain point in time, Paul made a decision to turn, to change directions. The Bible calls this consistently repentance. Those of you who are here this summer, or if you're familiar with the story of the book of Acts, you'll know that point. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's going to persecute Christians. He has this blinding revelation. God speaks to him, and it changes everything for Paul. Paul turns. I'm going to read verses 18 and 22 through 24. It's chapter 1. Listen to this. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days, 22 through 24. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul was a radical opponent of the church, but after his turn, he became its greatest advocate. Paul was a ruthless persecutor of Christ's followers, but after he turned, he became a relentless producer of Christ's followers. Paul was a warrior against the cause of Christ, but after he turned, he became a witness for the cause of Christ. He thought much of his accomplishments, and then after he turned, he thought very little of his accomplishments. When Paul made that turn, everything changed. Everything, all caps, bold, italicized, and underlined. Everything changed. You see, Paul had spent his life, the early part of his life, engaged in a disciplined, regimented self-salvation project. But after he turned, he learned to depend fully and solely on what God had done in Jesus Christ for his salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, self-salvation can take many forms. Hard work, kindness and good deeds, achievement or success, security, you know, marriage, kids, the nice house, someone to love you. And you and I end up feeling like, oh, if only I could have X, then I'll be okay. If only I could have X, then then I'll be happy. If, If only I could have X, I'll feel like I'm who I'm designed to be. I'll really feel like myself. If only I could have X, whatever it is, I'll be saved. But Paul recognized that his self-salvation project was ineffective. Don't lose me here. By the way, I think Paul's self-salvation project was the most applaudable self-salvation project imaginable. Paul's self-salvation project was to be as scrupulously righteous and religious as he could possibly be. But it was ineffective. It didn't produce for Paul the kind of humility, the kind of freedom that we talked about a second ago. It didn't really connect Paul to God in a personal, relational way. So Paul, at a certain point in time, recognized that he needed to be saved not to save himself. Even that language is kind of interesting, isn't it? For these first followers of Jesus, the kind of connection that they made with Jesus was so dramatic, it was so life-altering for them, they couldn't come up with a word big enough. So they used consistently, all of them, they used the word saved. It's everything about me has been changed. I've been rescued. Because formerly, I had all of this working for me, but, but it wasn't working. And I made a turn, and now my life is in sync with with the universe. Listen to another section where Paul gives a little more of his story. I'm going to read from his letter to a group of Christians in Philippi. He says this, uh, beginning chapter 3, verse 4. Look, if anyone thinks 
that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh. That means in their accomplishments and what they've done in their body and, and their life so far. Look, I've got more reason than anybody. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept everyone. I did it all. I was the most religious guy you've ever met. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church because anything that I thought threatened my little religious system, I wanted to crush it. I was so zealous. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. You couldn't find a law that I didn't know and was already following. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever I used to consider as an asset, the entire list of accomplishments, for me now, it's on the other side of the ledger. I consider all of that loss. It means nothing. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And, but I consider them rubbish, just if only I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. I'm not trying to work this out. That's not my story. My story is His story. Now my story is subsumed. My story is a part of what He's doing. I'm not some religious guy who's checking all the boxes and figuring it all out and trying to be as nice as I can be. My story is his story through me. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. At a certain point in time, Paul made a decision Again, we know that part of Paul's story, familiar with the story of Acts. We know that he was on his way to Damascus. We know that he was going to persecute Christians. And we know that he had a blinding revelation and Jesus Christ spoke to him. So, for us this morning, what's your story? Now, I know that there are a few of us who have never made the decision to turn. There are a few of us here who've never really been able to get the complete turning toward God being the driving force in our lives and and our lives being all about worshiping and honoring Jesus Christ. For some of us, we are still involved in a self-salvation project of one form or another. We're trying to secure our own life We're trying to make meaning out of our life for ourselves. I want you to know that the process of turning can happen today. And it's as simple as you acknowledging that before God. So we're going to pray right now. And as we pray, this is what I want you to do. For those of you who have a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, I want you to say this prayer along with me as just a way of affirmation of the truth that you've been underneath for years or for months or for days for those of you who have have never made a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done this is an opportunity for you to begin the process of turning turning toward him so I'm going to say a prayer phrase by phrase this morning and if we can let's just silently in our own hearts let's affirm this prayer as I pray it out loud you pray it in your own heart to the degree that you're able so let's pray together Dear Jesus, thank you for making me and loving me. Even when I've ignored you and gone my own way. I realize I need you in my life and I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please help me to understand it more. As much as I know how, I want to follow you from now on. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. Please help me to grow now as a Christian. Amen. All right, many of you I know, you're here because you made the decision to turn, to turn away from self-salvation project, to turn toward 
the process of having him save you. You made that decision a long time ago. Some of you have even grown in your understanding of what it means to have God as the driving force in your life. That reality for you that God is the driving force in your life, you've already gone through that process of having that be earlier and earlier and earlier in your life. You know, John, I think of some of our early experiences together. It reminds me of a pastor I heard he gave his testimony years ago. And he said in his testimony, you know, I came to a point when it was early in my marriage, my marriage was falling apart, and I was a musician and a drug addict, and I, at one point I came to the point where I, I found myself, I didn't even know exactly how, but I found myself in this room full of people who were talking about following God and talking about Jesus, and I didn't get it, and you know, I just felt like I just had to fall on my knees. And I got on my knees in the middle of this group of people and all embarrassment had left me and I just began to cry. And then he said something fascinating. He said, years after that, I began to wonder whether I had fallen on my knees or God had pushed me. Our story is God's story working in us. And some of you have been aware of that for years. And you know that really for us, that turn that I'm talking about, you know, at a certain point, Paul made the decision to turn. You know that really, our whole lives is like a moment in eternity. It's, it's, it's gone in a flash. And that turning process for us, right, it, it really takes kind of the balance of our lives. It's kind of what we're constantly doing. We're constantly turning toward Him. And, and it's not like, you know, here we're going along and we're connect into our own lives and it's a self-salvation project and then we realize this is not working my best effort has got me completely screwed up god and we just run toward him that's not the way it works for you and i what happens is we get blinded and we oh yeah and we see it we really see it and something really shifts inside of us and we start to make the turn and then we look back wait now that part was working and, and it's that constant struggle, right, of, of doing this. But, but our lives really are devoted to making that turn fully and completely toward Him. And every time we decide, every time we decide to turn, every time we repent, there's a release of freedom and joy and humility. Real quick, I can't help but think of this process, this turning process in Paul himself. I remember years ago I was in seminary, the first time I heard someone say this, I, some guy in seminary class raises his hand and asks some question about the Apostle Paul that led us all to think about how unbelievable, amazing, incredible the Apostle Paul was. And this professor, brilliantly, this professor said, you need to understand that for Paul this was a process too. In one of Paul's earliest letters... Paul writes a group of Christians in Corinth, and he says to them, you know what, I am the least of all the apostles. And we read that and we go, what? Least of all? You wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You started dozens of churches in Asia Minor and Europe. Paul, you are sick with humility. That's awesome. That's incredible. But then later in his life, Paul writes a letter to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and he says, I'm the least of all the saints. How are you the least of all the saints? And at the end of his life, he writes his young mentee, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. As he gets closer and closer to God, he doesn't feel bigger and larger. Instead, he recognizes his increasingly himself and there's more and more turning because less and less he wants to have anything to do with the old Paul that old way that self-salvation project this is the touchstone for you and I right this is square one for those of us who follow Christ it's the recognition that God is the driving force in my life and it's constantly turning toward that and turning away from my self-salvation project I want us to engage in a prayer again. And I want you to join me in this. I'm going to try to put this prayer online for any of you who would like to use this as a morning prayer through the week.
uh, just as a way of exercising what we talked about this morning. Can I get you to do something with me? Can you stand with me and just pray with me? I'm going to lead us in this prayer. At the end of each paragraph, I'll pause just for a few seconds to allow you to reflect on what we've prayed, and then we'll go on to the next part of our prayer. But let's go to him now if we can. Eternal God, you are the beginning and end of all things. You are awesome in power and glorious in beauty and goodness. You've been involved with me since before I was born. This is both a sovereignty and a kindness that I cannot even imagine. You have been pursuing and protecting, wooing and nurturing, guiding and directing. And right now, I'm mindful of your long-standing work in my story. I recognize today that you are the driving force in my life. I welcome that truth and I lean into the freedom and humility it produces in me. I pray for your purposes for me today. I pray that I would be for others today. I pray that my agenda today would be your agenda for me. I submit myself right now. I give you my decisions today. I give you my time today. I give you my relationships today. I give you my body today. I give you my money today. I give you my needs. Lord God, you are the only source of real life and security and meaning. I confess that I have tried to put myself in your place through self-salvation projects, and today I relinquish all attempts to save myself. I acknowledge Jesus Christ fully God yet made fully man the exact representation of God's being right now I repent I turn away from all that is not of you and I leave everything else behind in order to follow Jesus Christ I am mindful right now of his life, his character and his sacrifice for me I choose today to put that before me. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Okay, we get to end our time of worship today by celebrating what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never made the decision to turn, if you recognize often in your life or maybe this morning for the first time that you're engaged in a self-salvation project for you it's really about securing your own life and being the best person you can be and that's what it really amounts to then I want you to know this meal is especially for those who have made the decision to turn their lives toward God and allow him to be the driving force in their life but you're welcome to join us And even if that's true this morning, then we would love for you right now in this moment to make the decision (laughs) to begin that turn and to receive this meal this morning. Here's what this represents. This represents J.K. Rowling writing herself into the story. And this is what we get to do today. We get to be Harry Potter realizing, hey, you're not Dumbledore, and you're you're, you're J.K. Rowling. You wrote the sinking story. This is us acknowledging who wrote the story today. We're going to take the wafer in just a second. We're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And we're going to remember his life, his character, his death for us. And his resurrection. Making all things right. And creating the possibility for us to genuinely put an end to our self-salvation project and turning fully toward him. And then we're going to pass cups and we're going to say the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And we're going to say that to one another. So you're going to get to be priests to one another. Let's pray before you take it. Father, thank you for writing yourself into our story. Both in history and Jesus, but then very personally. 
making yourself known to us. We receive you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. He gave us some instructions to remember himself on the last night of his life. They were participating in the Passover meal. And he took the cup as part of that meal, and he said, This cup, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So when you pass these cups to one another, you say, The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. stand together and sing a hymn that represents our prayer in response to this morning. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord for Thee. Take my moments and my Here. 